Health 101 is brought to you by the Metro Omaha Medical Society and its physician members, and we are so grateful to Midwest Gastrointestinal Associates for their support. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Health 101, a podcast brought to you by the Metro Omaha Medical Society. I am excited to talk about this one because I don't really understand what we're all talking about when we talk about these cleanses and whether or not we have to eat these certain foods and what are we doing with our plumbing. And so now I've brought Helen Fasanya Updegraff. She is going to set us straight and she's going to tell us what we really need to know about that whole gastro thing going on in our bodies. And so, Helen, thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited to talk about this. Carol, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to talk to you about this. So I have been inundated with girlfriends because they knew that I was going to get a chance to talk to you who are like, can we talk about the cleanses that everyone seems to, you know, you can go buy the cleanse, a 21-day liquid cleanse that comes in a box to your house. Um, Some, you know, you can read some of those celebrities and the cayenne pepper, lemon juice, weird stuff, the cabbage soup diet, all of those, they're supposed to cleanse your system. My question for you is purely, I might be just ignorant. I really thought that your whole digestive system was kind of like the giant garbage disposal of your system. Everything kind of goes in that it wasn't supposed to be spotless and clean inside. Am I missing something or am I thinking about it too simplistically? So I think there's just a little bit of a misunderstanding of our insides. Um, I think everyone is different and everyone has different gastrointestinal issues, so to speak. So some people might suffer from constipation, for instance, which makes them bloated and it just makes you feel overall um, icky, kind of just really uncomfortable. Some people have the opposite problem. They have diarrhea and, you know, and some people think that, um, or maybe not think, but um, every time they eat a certain food, they seem to have diarrhea symptoms. So um, indicative of the fact that they're, they may not be tolerating the certain foods that they're eating properly. So I think a cleanse is um, viewed um with different benefits for different people. Um, for those who are cleansing because they're constipated, which makes the most sense to me, um, it, it makes sense, right? So when, when they take a laxative, which is what those cleanses are, if you look at their ingredients, um, that's the benefit of it, they feel better. Uh, do you have to routinely cleanse your system? I think to believe that, you would have to believe that your system isn't intelligent enough to begin with um, and that the homeostasis in your system is disrupted. And so you need to do something in order to aid it. Um, And the way that the medical profession views it is in a little bit of a different way. If you don't have any gastrointestinal issues that affect your digestion, so if you don't have celiac disease or inflammatory bowel disease, and I can go on uh, with many other um, gastrointestinal issues, your system really should work well on its own when you give it the food that it needs. Um, There are certain foods that are less well tolerated than other foods, and so um, I think we need to maybe approach this in a slightly different way. As opposed to starting with the cleanses, we need to talk about um, the foods that we should be maybe avoiding because we're 
not tolerating them as well. And everyone is different. And also the the things in our system that help us break down those foods, which is our uh, microbiome, which is something that we're learning about. Um, but a cleanse is not really going to help your microbiome. So to answer your question, I don't think that these cleanses really have any uh, validated data to back them, to back their claims. Um, I think that they are helpful in some people who are constipated because they help the bloating symptom. But overall, I don't think that they're healthy or, um, or that they provide any additional health benefits. So what do we know, need to know about microbiome? Because that seems to be talked about more and that the digestive system is the second brain of your mm-hmm. entire body. Is that true? Uh, yes. Uh, I always tell my patients that the, the gut is the second brain of the body in, in the number of nerves that it has, that it houses. Um, the enteric nervous system is um, very heavily populated with uh, nerves. And so, um, and they are in direct communication with your central nervous system. So there's, you know, even though their main role is food digestion, um, they can affect all aspects of your life, including mood. And the way that you perceive pain or the way that you perceive abdominal discomfort. Um, the microbiome, what do we need to know? It's, it's in its infancy stages. I mean, we've um, learned so much recently about it and yet know so little still about it. There's so many questions that still remain. Um, what we do know is that we live in, um, in conjunction with these bacteria in our system, and they are involved in everything in our bodies, um, from our food digestion to the development of our immune system, um, to our susceptibility to disease, um, you know, to the way that we store the nutrients that we uh, absorb, um, and so. You know, whether we're going to be storing it as fat or if we're going to be metabolizing them, all of that is so tightly woven with the type of bacteria that we have. Um, And we know that our diet really affects the type of bacteria that we have. Um, We can change our bacterial population, and then that in turn affects our immune system and it affects our um, food digestion and all of the things that bacteria help us do. Um, For instance, red wine, uh, intake of red wine. Studies have shown that uh, people who drink red wine on a regular basis have an increased uh, type of bacteria that lowers inflammation. So, Well, hello. (laughs) um, You know, obviously we don't use red wine to treat gastrointestinal inflammation, but there are some studies that have shown that. So uh, that's one thing to think about on the flip side. We know that in certain patients um, who are genetically susceptible, uh, foods that are high in sulfates, such as proteins and red meat, especially processed meat, um, increase the sulfite-reducing bacteria. And that is a type of bacteria that increases inflammation. So we know that diet affects our bacterial makeup. We don't yet have all of the answers to it. So, you know, I, I tell my patients with inflammatory bowel disease, for instance, um, to avoid processed meats, because we know that for sure that um, there's some increased inflammation um, with those type of foods. But I really can't uh, counsel them 
all that much about diet because we just don't have a lot of data to support one diet over another. Then there's the probiotics. So I assume that in the discussion and the delving into the world of microbiomes that the probiotics have come into play. And and I know, you know, yogurt has been the big discussion about add that, and if not, then go to a supplement. Good, bad, ugly? Um, <laughs> yeah, so probiotics, another area that is just now being studied we don't know how much probiotics you need, what type of probiotics, what bacteria should be in your probiotics, how much of the bacteria should be in your probiotics, how long do you take probiotics. Um, you know, I, I recommend probiotics for my patients who are going to have some disruption in their gut flora. So for instance, they're going to be treated with antibiotics or they have been hospitalized and have been in the system that's very different from their typical environment. Um, and you know that their gut flora is going to be different. And now they're having symptoms of bloating, or there's some change in their bowel habits, and you know that it's related to the change in their gut flora. So taking a probiotic for a month or two months afterwards sounds reasonable to me. I say sounds reasonable because there's no data really to support this this claim. We haven't done a lot of studies to say that patients after hospital stay benefit from probiotics. Now, there have been some studies that looked at probiotics and um, recurrence of infections such as Clostridium difficile, and there is some benefit. Again, those have been in certain types of probiotics, so we're, we're again looking for certain probiotics. And if you look in the pharmacy, there's so many different ones that even I don't know exactly what to recommend to my patients. Um, you know, if they if they come in with certain recurrent infections, um, I typically steer them towards one type of probiotic versus another, um, lactobacillus containing probiotics versus the uh, bifidobacterium containing probiotics. Um, I I would recommend speaking to your doctor when trying to decide on a probiotic. Not everyone will benefit from this. You know, I see some patients taking probiotics for months and months at a time. Um, and I wonder if that contributes to some of their bloating. You know, taking all of this bacteria um, may not be the, the most healthy thing to do also. So I think every individual is different and every case should be individualized. And I would recommend doing um, deciding on what type of probiotic with your physician. Uh, in certain cases, it is more recommended, uh, such as with antibiotics use. Uh, don't take probiotics in conjunction with the antibiotics because then you'll just be wasting the probiotics. But for a period of time after the antibiotic treatment, it would be reasonable. Um, you know, and then just eating a healthy diet. With uh, yogurt is always a great way of just introducing those natural probiotics without actually having to take a pill um, that's full with bacteria. I have always heard that gastroenterologists love high fiber diets. Can you help me explain why? I mean, I know good diet is good diet is just a good diet with high fiber so much more. And even to the point where I hear people say, oh, that only is nine grams of fiber. That's not enough fiber. What am I thinking about when I think about what you think people should be choosing for their diet? 
So I would say that an average female, um, just diet-wise, requires about 35 grams of fiber per day. So this is just nutritional um, studies and uh, nutritional recommendations. So, you know, concentrating or focusing on the amount of fiber that you take in, um, it really leads to that goal of satisfying your dietary requirement for fiber. The benefits of fiber are um, multiple. Um, I see fiber as a scrubbing brush for your colon. So um, it just helps to make your stools more regular. um, And I think the older people get, the more um, understanding they have that a regular bowel habit is 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 golden. Uh, it's it's very important for overall health and sense cells, uh, sense of well being. Um, so, just for bowel regularity, fiber is beneficial. Um, fiber is also filling, so um, it's it's non absorbable. So you don't really get you know you, you you're not getting extra calories from fiber, um, but it does fill you up. So. It helps to reduce cholesterol in that way because when you eat, you have this filler that then just comes out in your stool. It's kind of a win-win. You eat, but you don't gain anything. Um, So it's almost negative calories. Right, right. (laughs) (laughs) Not really, but yes. Um, And there are some conditions that really do benefit from fiber intake. So uh, in patients with diverticular disease, for instance, um, although studies haven't directly shown that fiber reduces the risk of diverticulitis, we do know that fiber does help um, in the overall colonic health of patients with diverticular disease, and so that is a frequent recommendations from a recommendation from gastroenterologists. Um, fiber is beneficial in hemorrhoidal disease. It helps to prevent hemorrhoidal bleeding. It helps to uh, prevent worsening of hemorrhoids. Um, And it does that by uh, making your stools more regular. Um, What fiber does inside of the colon is it increases that osmotic load inside of the colon, and that allows for water to be absorbed into the stool. So the stools are softer, um, and they're more regular, um, the fiber itself gives the stool more bulk, and so the colon knows to propulse that further. So it works in many ways to really, it comes down to bowel regularity. Is that still the hallmark of good gut health in your mind? And is it the, if you are, I mean, for lack of better words, if you are pooping regularly and if your stools are good, is that still kind of the, you're in good shape, whereas it's when you aren't that you need to think about what's happening? So I think that also is an individual um, individual thing. So, you know, what's regularity? I, I, I think it's different for everyone. Some people may have one to two bowel movements per day, and that's their norm while others may go three days without a bowel movement, but they feel just fine. They have a normal, soft uh, bowel movement that they're not straining with. Um, and that's okay. You can't say that one is um, one should be improved while the other is, is perfect. Um, I think it depends on how you feel. If 
you go three days without a bowel movement and you feel bloated and constipated and you're straining on that third day and you're having a hard stool, then yes, you are constipated and um, you need to have a better stool frequency. If on the other hand, you feel fine, I, I wouldn't improve that. Um, you know, we use, we use the bowel frequency in conjunction with how patients feel. So if there's, if there's some discomfort there, I, I typically will suggest one thing or the other, but uh, I don't know that there's a gold standard. I mean, um, the perfect, of course, would be to have a nice formed stool every single day and completely clean out. But uh, the reality is everyone's motility is different, and so that may not be an achievable or reasonable goal to attain for every single person. We are so grateful to Midwest Gastrointestinal Associates for their support. Midwest Gastrointestinal Associates PC is the area's best choice for high-quality and cost-effective digestive care with convenient locations in Omaha, Bellevue, Council Bluffs, and Fremont. Our board-certified gastroenterologists can perform colonoscopy, upper endoscopy, and treat IBD, IBS, reflux, and much, much more. Trust your gut to Midwest GI. Contact Midwest GI at 402-397-7057 or visit MidwestGI.com for more information. When we talk to um, allergists, we talk about food sensitivity and the frequency with which there is what appears to be some sensitivities. And mo- a lot of times, she says, it shows up in the gut. You know, it, it's diarrhea. It's, it's, you know, stomach aches. It's cramping. Um, so then I look at, you know, there are the known celiac disease, the gluten sensitivity versus gluten sensitivity. And I know that there's a difference between the two or a lactose intolerance. Do those have an effect besides the fact that they affect how you feel? Do those do long-term damage to your kind of digestive system? So again, it depends on what the, um, the disorder is. So in the case of celiac disease, that is a true allergic reaction to the molecule gluten. Um, And those patients uh, have an inflammatory response whenever their bodies see gluten. And that inflammatory response uh, disrupts the intestinal um, epithelial barrier. And and so we actually do see some damage um, endoscopically. So when we do an endoscopy, for instance, Uh, the little finger-like projections that help us absorb our nutrients in the small intestine are completely flattened or effaced in in someone who has celiac disease and has been exposing themselves to gluten. And then that long-standing inflammation can actually lead to um, further inflammation, ulcerations, um, sometimes stricture formations, and in the worst-case scenario, cancer. So you know, in those cases, yes, the inflammatory response directly leads to mucosal damage. Um, in cases of intolerance, where it's not a true allergy, and it's it's not a true uh, damaging inflammatory response, it's more of a malabsorption. This goes back to, again, our bacterial makeup and how the bacteria that we have um, help us break down certain foods. There are certain carbohydrates, um, the fermentable type of carbohydrates, that majority of us cannot fully break down. And that's where our bacteria come in. 
and they break down those carbohydrates and their byproduct is gas, methane gas and hydrogen gas. And so we feel bloated and those gases and um, uh, byproducts increase the osmotic load in the colon again and cause a lot of water absorption into the colon, thereby causing diarrhea. So, you know, these patients have an almost immediate reaction. They've had an ice cream or a rich uh, white pasta meal um, that they're intolerant of, and they run to the bathroom um, with diarrhea. So those, you know, do we perform an upper endoscopy for those? No. So I, I don't know if at that time we would see some inflammation, but typically we don't there's there's not any mucosal direct mucosal damage. There's not a um, a breakdown of the intestinal barrier, um, at least on a macroscopic level. There might be some microscopic um, loosening of the tight junctions there that leads for more water to be absorbed and for some inflammation to happen. I always tell my patients, I can't make you tolerate a food that you can't tolerate. So those are individual things. Also, you know, it's kind of keeping a food diary and noting what you are um, sensitive to and and perhaps intolerant of. We do have some tests for that. We can do breath testing to see, for instance, how much of that hydrogen and methane you breathe out after a meal that is rich in certain uh, of those fermentable carbohydrates. So we can test for that if you have a question as to whether you're lactose or fructose intolerant. Um, We can also test for bacterial overgrowth. So that's something that we frequently do for people who complain of um, uh, abdominal bloating or intolerance to certain foods. Um, another way of doing this is just kind of eliminating or limiting your carbohydrates just in general. And there's a lot more um, interest in that, the low-carbohydrate diets. And I think people feel um, better when limiting their intake of bread and pasta just because they're really high in those fermentable carbohydrates. Do you feel like we're seeing more disorders or is it just that we're um, hearing more and it's more popular? And I say that because I feel like I hear more about colitis, more about Crohn's, more, more about those autoimmune type diseases of the, of the systems, of the digestive system than I used to. And, um, you know, and I hear about people managing them or maybe I just see more prescription drug ads. I'm not, you know, any which ones could be more raising in the consciousness. Is it, is it happening more? I think so. I, again, it depends on the disorder that you're looking at. I, I, the incidence of inflammatory bowel disease is increasing. So that's your ulcerative colitis and your Crohn's disease. Um, is it increasing um, because we are diagnosing it more often, because we're more aware of it, we've got better testing, um, or is it really that that the incidence is increasing? I, I think the incidence is increasing because we've had you know colonoscopies for, for years now, and we've had the same tests, um, uh, and there are certain environmental factors that, that have been associated with this. We don't know exactly all of the factors that contribute to onset of this um, family history plays a role, but environment also smoking and um, the availability of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, ibuprofen and uh, things like that. And um, also our use of antibiotics uh, contributes to all of this. 
Um, so yes, the incidence is increasing for inflammatory bowel disease. I think the issues with um, food intolerances um, may be multifold. We may be becoming more intolerant for one reason or the other. I can't really comment on that. Um, but we also may be hyper aware, more aware of this now, and um, just knowing the terms and um, having more access to it online. I, I think Google has uh, a big role with this. So, um, Right, we look up everything that is yes. discom- discomfort or uncomfortable in our systems yes. to try to understand what's yes. happening. And these these symptoms can be anything. So it's you know it's um, you know you can plug in your three symptoms mm-hmm. and pretty much come up with really any diagnosis that you were thinking about before. So uh, it's a really dangerous place to be. The internet. Are you destined to have the gut health of your parents? Is it genetics what you have um, and how you react to? how your food digests and how your body works? In part, in part, it's genetics, um, but it's, that's only a part. I, I mean, even in inflammatory bowel diseases where we have um, a lot of data, um, we know that genetics plays only a role. Um, and it's not, you know, the fact that your parents both have Crohn's disease um, makes your risk of Crohn's disease higher, but it doesn't mean that you're going to have Crohn's disease um, and if your parents, you, you could be the first case of Crohn's disease as well. Um, food intolerances, I, I think, uh, could also run in families. You know, there's just not very much um, data looking into that yet. So um, uh, we don't know if it's if it's certain genetics that make us um, uh, susceptible to some intolerances versus others. I mean, lactose intolerance does seem to run in families. So there is some role of genetics, yes, but you're, um, you're also able to change some of that um, with, with diet intolerances, at least. I also feel like there is more discussion, or in people's minds, there's more of a link between the stress levels you manage, the, you know, the kind of crazy pace that we keep in our lifestyles of running around. And, and part of it is probably that when you're in a hurry all the time, you're not making good food choices. So, you know, you have to acknowledge that that's also happening in partnership with, um, but that there are more stomach woes. I agree with that. And that goes back to the gut being the second brain of the body. Um, Stress, lack of sleep um, can all affect the gut nervous system. Um, some patients have intestinal migraines, for instance, uh, which what? are, yeah, it's, it's abdominal pain that we just can't lay a finger on. So um, it's, it's pain that uh, doesn't come on with any inflammation or is not resultant from a mass or a tumor or something that's directly causing the pain. And it's really just a firing of, of nerves um, that occurs every so often, much like a just a headache migraine. Um, so you can have a lot of the same things that occur in the brain, in the gut. Um, any anxiety or depression that may be suppressed in the central nervous system can manifest in the enteric nervous system, and it can be interpreted as abdominal pain. And um, this is the basis for gastroenterologists using medications that are similar 
to what we use to treat depression and anxiety. Uh, we use them in different doses, but um, what we're doing is really targeting that enteric nervous system, thinking that it is the second brain and it, it is affected much like the central nervous system. Um, stress and lack of sleep, I think we need more data to support that, but um, it's 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 been pretty evident that um, adequate sleep helps overall uh, inflammation. You know, we have um, hormones that are released as a stress response when our levels of stress are, are high, which they are when we don't get a lot of sleep, um, but also when um, we, we don't deal with stress in, in better ways. And those hormones are inflammatory. And so they um, encourage inflammation all over. They also affect the way that we uh, break down our food, for instance. They affect the release of insulin. and um, All of these hormones are um, intertwined, and um, so it comes back to the way that we uh, digest and absorb. And um, so they all play a role um, and are all connected and um, are important to think about. I'm I I believe the colonoscopy is still the gold standard and it's still the way you see a lot of what's actually happening, right? As you go in there and you take a look at the colon and it tells you the story that behind the story. Um, does that change with the poop sample testing, the pill that's supposed to have the camera in there? You know, do those take the place? Do they do it? You know, because if you ask anyone who's ever had a colonoscopy, they tell you about the prep. <laughs> Where are we going with this? Okay. So if we're thinking about colon cancer screening, um, then yes, colonoscopy is still the gold standard. It is the test that every other test is compared to. Um, you know, there are three tiers of colon cancer screening, and colonoscopy is number one of tier one, uh, followed by the, the fecal immunochemistry uh, test, that, which is a stool test. Um, and then there are other second tier, and the third tier has capsule endoscopy, which we really don't use for colon cancer screening. Um, in terms of the PrEP, um, there's, you know, I just, I tell my patients, there's no way around it. You have to clean out your colon. You have to flush it out. It has to be clean so that we can see any flat polyps or any small polyps. Uh, because the, the benefit of a colonoscopy is that no, not only are we screening for colon cancer, but we're also preventing it. Because in that same test, we take out that precursor of colon cancer. And so if there's still some stool in your colon, then we can't be 100% certain that we have seen every single polyp. And um, there's a miss rate anyway. Even in the cleanest colon, we have to tell the patient that there's a possibility we missed something small. Um, but that likelihood is just decreased when your colon is clean. They are making so many headways now with lower volume prep. There are going to be some pills that are going to be available once again. We've had the pills available before, and they didn't do so well. They caused kidney damage, and so um, this is going to be a different set of pills. But there's a lot of low-volume preps. Um, there are some where you're dr drinking just 8 ounces of prep, and that's followed by 
32 ounces of water, which I think is doable, and it's good tasting prep. I've tasted it, and it's a, um, and there, there are others. So there's a number of different types of preps, and you can talk to your, your doctor about it, and your doctor might alter the amount of prep that you need based on your bowel habits. So someone with constipation may not be the best candidate for the eight ounces because that would not give them the best chance. Um, Having said that, you have to clean out your colon for a virtual colonoscopy as well. So if you were to go with a virtual colonoscopy, which is a CAT scan, um, a CT colonography, which is a second tier for colon cancer screening, you would also have to drink a colon prep. So you're not avoid. It's not just in a in a colonoscopy. And then if you were uh, found to have a small polyp, you would then need to drink the prep again and have a colonoscopy. So you might just be saving yourself the double dip and doing it once. You might be. Yes. By the way, I just have to ask: Have you taste tested a lot of different preps just out of a? Because I'm sure your patients all say, "God, there's got to be a better tasting one." Oh, please tell me there's a smaller dosage one. So, do you taste test some of them? We do taste test some oh, really? of them. Yes. <laughs> uh, we try not to drink too much during a work day. <laughs> <laughs> But yes, you have to be able to tell your patients what they taste like, and um, you know it's helpful for the for the uh, pharmaceutical representatives to bring them over so we can we can try them out and um, and make a decision for ourselves what's the best one. There's really no good taste in prep, <laughs> <laughs> and the truth comes out. There, but there are some ra- there are some horrible ones, right? Uh, yes, <laughs> yes, but they work really well. <laughs> <laughs> so those are the odds and ends. If you had the ability to tell your patients before they be even become patients what handful of things, couple of things they can do that would really make a difference to them, to their colon health, to their life health, to their gut health, what would you tell them? I would say eat more whole foods. Less processed, more fresh fruits and vegetables, more fiber-rich foods. Um, eat less just in general, don't overfill your stomach, um, exercise, don't exercise soon after eating. It takes a normal stomach about three to four hours to completely empty. So, you know, you can increase the, the uh, risk of having acid reflux or um, the discomfort if you're doing those type of activities shortly after eating. But um, really, it's just eating healthier um, I know that's kind of a nebulous term, but I think if we stuck with foods that are um, more fresh, um, less uh, concentrated in, in saturated fats, less processed, uh, we would do well for our, for our colonic health or inside health. Also, you know, avoiding unnecessary antibiotics. I think the medical profession in general is um, trying to uh, be more better antibiotic stewards. Um, avoiding the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, which can break down our mucosal barrier. Um, there are some patients who absolutely need those drugs, but um, just being cognizant that certain drugs that we take actually do have negative side effects. I am blown away. I am very, I'm very excited about all the things we're still learning and what we don't know, and just about how it all kind of fits together because. You know, it feels like everywhere you turn, what, what you eat, how you live your life, factor in 
everything Thing. in health. It's such yeah. a, such a huge factor. It's an exciting yet very unknown field still. It's a field where we don't have very much data and um, I, it's going to take some years for us to fully understand it. Excited what we'll discover in the meantime. Helen, thank you so much for being part of this, for helping educate everyone. I hope it's given you some things to think about for your gut and for the rest of your digestive's health. And we'll talk to you guys next time. A Parkville Media Production. The information shared in this podcast is for informational purposes only. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the presenters and do not represent the thoughts, advice, or opinions of the Metro Omaha Medical Society. The information contained in this podcast should not serve as the basis for any medical treatment and is not intended to be a substitute for actual medical advice. Before making changes to your health care plan or a loved one's, always consult with a health care professional.